The story you're about to hear was told to me in the strictest of confidence. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that confidence. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the people, places or events that appear in this story, ask you not to reveal any information publicly, out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. David Paul Nixon, and you're listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast, where we delve into the New Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. We have a time-tested method for helping us to understand the things that have happened to us and to help us predict what will happen in the future, to help us comprehend that which is complex and hard to understand, to help us navigate through the complexity, and to make things seem clear and obvious. And that is to make a story, create a narrative, arrange the information into a shape that we all recognise with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because we all understand how stories work, it's how our parents communicated with us growing up, It's how we received our lessons and our entertainment. It's how their parents taught and educated them. It's how our ancestors passed down knowledge from generation to generation. It's the easiest, most accessible structure for making sense of complex information. What's happening, why it's happening, and what might happen next. It's a framework that's appealing because it organises everything brings order and sense to it. It offers very clear correlations of cause and effect. Everything that happens connects clearly to something else. Everything that takes place has a purpose. It all links together and contributes to some greater end. Everything that happens in a story happens for a reason. And that can be comforting It can make us believe that everything that happens in the world, that happens to us, is in service to some greater purpose. It makes us think there is some degree of control, that there is some larger, great, grand plan, rather than endless chaos and random chance, that we have some role to play, that we're all on a journey of meaning and significance rather than face the fear that we might be entirely insignificant and that our lives have no meaning and that it's all about nothing. When trying to explain incidents of the supernatural, we often look for a plausible narrative to explain them. When reports of an apparition come to light, it's common for someone to do their research and try to find some dramatic incident in the past that may offer an explanation. Because that's how we've decided this kind of story is supposed to work. And if you look back far enough, you can always find something, some tragedy, some act of violence, a broken heart, a betrayal, a murder, something gothic, 
romantic, intriguing. But good storytelling often tends to gloss over the details. Good stories leave out the boring bits or the inconvenient information. Sometimes that tragic and traumatic act didn't happen exactly where the apparition is seen. Maybe it happened close by, in the old building, not the new restored one. They may not have died instantly. They may have actually passed in bed in hospital, on the gallows, far away, days or even weeks later. And it's always the romantic figures, knights, damsels, maidens, sea captains, highwaymen, as if tragedy is exclusive to certain classes, professions, ages or time periods, as if no middle-aged accountants, lawyers, cleaners or road sweepers ever had something tragic happen to them. And as they ask in a current best-selling West End play, why are there no cavemen ghosts? When trying to understand phenomena that is hard to classify or explain, it's reasonable that we should use the same frameworks that we employ to understand other aspects of life. But the problem as I see it is that the supernatural is already something that isn't following the established rules. The problem as so I how see it is that the supernatural is already something that isn't what is following established rules. Why would we assume anything so rational is taking place? I try to remember this when I'm carrying out my own research and investigations, because it's always tempting to draw conclusions when certain things seem to correlate, and then expect those things to add up to something. Sometimes it does seem obvious, an event from the past, especially one personal to the subject, seems to directly relate to something that's happening again in the present. There is some kind of rhyming or a playing of things, that happened in the past. But sometimes when we seek a pattern, how can we be sure that there is one? How do we know we're not just seeing shapes in the clouds? All kinds of things can seem to be connected, but how do we know those connections are real or meaningful? We like to think that there's some sense to it all, that if we can find enough pieces, we can find an explanation. Maybe there isn't one. For me, the supernatural is at its most frightening when there is no clear explanation, when for no rhyme or reason something appears in the dark and the path we thought we had laid out for us takes a sudden, sharp, decisive turn. This is New Ghost Stories, case number 213. It's called Weeds, and you can hear it in full, uninterrupted, after these messages. Before we start, I want to ask a quick favour. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you could give the show a review. It really helps people to find the show and for me to share it with new listeners. You can review the show on Apple Podcasts or on the Spotify mobile app if you go to the show page and tap the three dot button. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you. And now, on with the story. When Linda died... There seemed to be no point in pretending things could go on as they used to, because things weren't going to be the same. We'd been together for almost 40 years. It was rather like losing a limb. You get used to doing everything together. I really had forgotten what it was like to be by myself. I was talking to my eldest, Jonathan, 
And he said something to me after she died that really stuck with me. The life insurance was fairly substantial. Our mortgage was paid long ago and this new money meant that I I no longer had to work. I could retire early. So Jonathan said to me, he said I should use the money to do something I'd always wanted to do, live out some dream that I'd always had. It was a good idea, but I just couldn't think of anything. And it's not because I I didn't have ideas, but without Linda, every idea seemed to have lost most of its appeal. It might have been the grief talking, but I couldn't become excited about anything. Any dreams I'd had were always with her beside me. There was one thing I'd always wanted, but we'd never had, and that was a proper garden. We had this little patch of grass outside the old house, but it had never been very much. And around the back we just had this concrete yard. We should have bought a place with a garden. I always regretted that the boys never had a proper place to play. We should have moved and we often talked about it, but we never got around to it. I think what made me want a garden was that it was something to do. Something that needed time and work and care. If I was going to retire, I would need some work. Now more than ever, I wanted something to occupy myself with. It was silly, really. To get a big garden, I ended up buying a bigger house. Just for me. I had all these rooms, these rooms I couldn't fill. I thought that maybe the children could come down during the summer. Jonathan and Gwyn could bring the grandkids. And maybe when the grandkids were going to university, they could stay over and... Well, I just wanted an excuse, really. It was a beautiful garden. It was split onto two levels. A rockery separating the two, with some stone steps in the middle. There's a little pagoda, a bit rotten but salvageable. And then there's a small pond and a patio with a barbecue. The previous owners had just put down poison to keep the plants under control. It was all a bit of a mess, past its best, but with lots of potential. John thought I might be taking on too much, but that was fine by me. It wasn't like I had many other things to do. There's a big oak, completely wrong in some ways for the garden. Just a bit overwhelming, but the branches are very strong. I thought I could build a swing for the grandkids. I'll get round to it at some point. It was all rather daunting at first. So much to trim and cut back. I spent most of the first week going to B&Q and back for tools and gadgets and spades. There were quite a few decisions to be made about what to do, what to plant. There was one thing I knew I wanted to deal with straight away, and that was this great big boulder. It was dropped right on the rockery. Goodness knows how it got there. I had to get these men to come around and take the great big thing away. They couldn't explain it either. Why would you want something like that in your rockery? It made no sense. It was huge. took a small crane to shift it. Cost a fortune, I almost decided to leave it there, it was so expensive. But then the most curious thing happened. 
Most of the rockery had been poisoned, so there was only grass and dandelions and a few small weeds growing there now that spring had come back around. I was digging them out, which took me a couple of days. I'm not as quick as I used to be. Where the boulder had been, there was just mud underneath as you'd expect. But soon after it shifted, these little saplings grew. I was surprised. I didn't know anything could grow so quickly. But then nothing grew like this plant did. It was baby George's christening, so I was staying over in Bristol. I was only away two nights, but when I came back, the things had grown about two feet tall. They were thin, leafy plants, standing upright, and completely black. They'd never seen anything like it. They had jet-black leaves and a sort of grubby, dark stems. They weren't attractive. I tried to pull one out of the soil, but it was tough and it brought me out in a sweat. It had a sort of dusty finish. It left sooty marks on my fingers. I was completely lost as to what on earth they could be. I had a look on my computer, and when I got stumped I sent a picture to Jonathan to see what he thought. He's obviously better at the internet than I am, but he couldn't find anything either. Then he asked me, didn't I used to know someone who knew about plants and so on? You know you're getting old when you start to forget about whole people. Marcus Levy was the father of twin boys who had been in Andrew's class at school. They had been to parties at our house and Marcus's wife had childminded for them for a couple of years while both me and Lynn were working. I was amazed Jonathan even remembered them. Their boys had been Andrew's friends, not his. So I sent Andrew an email to ask if he knew what had happened to them, because Marcus had been a botanist. So it turns out he was friends with the twins on the Facebook. So through them I got Marcus to be my friend and I got the chance to ask him about the plant. He was a teacher now, but he offered to have a look at a photo of the plant that I had uploaded. When he saw it, he couldn't identify it. He was also at a complete loss as to what to say about it. He offered to come over. He lived not too far away now, teaching at the University of East Sussex. I had him over to have a look at the plant and for a bit of a catch-up. In the end, we didn't talk about much other than the plant. He was absolutely fascinated by it. He'd never seen anything like it. By this time it had been less than two weeks since I'd shifted the boulder. The plants were now nearly four foot high, and there had to be almost forty of them, all crowded up in this small space where the boulder had been. It hadn't rained in all that time, and I certainly hadn't watered them. So how they were thriving was a mystery to us both. Although they hadn't spread beyond the concave left by the rock, they were now sprouting creeping vines at the base. They were spreading out to conquer the rest of the rockery. Marcus dubbed it the Trifid. And they'd also sprung these buds at the very top, as if they were about to open out into little black flowers. Marcus was tremendously excited. This was unlike anything he'd seen before. 
especially in the home counties. He uprooted one with a trowel, trying to keep as much of the roots intact as possible. He said he would go home and put it in some compost immediately. If it grew so fast in this old soil, then he was interested to see how quickly it would grow if he actually fed it. Although I think he was a bit sceptical about my claims as to how fast it had grown. He told me to let him know as soon as the flowers blossomed. He couldn't be sure the plant he had taken would survive. He asked me to take photographs and email them to him as soon as they opened up. Well, that didn't take long. There was a hot, humid storm, with thunder rumbling and rolling all night, and a sudden downpour early in the morning. I didn't emerge outside until the early afternoon, when the rain had stopped and the sun had penetrated through the clouds again. I saw that the buds on the black weeds had opened up overnight, revealing these small little flowers. They had five or six petals, each with a little split in the middle at each of the ends. And then in the centre, just this little touch of red, a dark crimson red. The only colour on the whole plant, a blood red. I went inside and fetched my phone to take the pictures. I took a few close-ups to send Marcus and then... I don't know why, but it occurred to me to smell their aroma. I placed my hand under the petals of one of the flowers. The petals were unusually thick and strangely warm. Not the warmth of the sun shining on them, but as if they actually made their own heat. I bent towards them to take in their aroma. It hit me like a face full of powder, like someone blowing flour or pepper into my face. I couldn't see this powder, but I clamped my eyes shut almost straight away. I felt like I could feel the pollen entering my airwaves, pouring through my sinuses and right into my frontal lobe. I was desperate to sneeze, but found myself victim to a sudden migraine, a surging pounding beneath my forehead. I staggered backwards. The front of my head hurt so badly I could barely open my eyes. It was as if the whole world had turned red. I managed to stumble back to the wall of the house. If I'd have been further away I might have fallen down. I had bent double, one hand on the wall, the other over my eyes. I dropped my phone, God knows where it was in the grass. I had to get inside. I didn't know what to do, but I thought the best thing to do might be to wash my face in cold water. I found my way into the kitchen, my head still throbbing. It hurt to open my eyes very much. I had to feel my way there. The water took some of the sting away, but it really did very little. I stood up and tried to open my eyes fully. My vision was all blurred. The harder I tried to focus, the more my head hurt. It was as if someone was grabbing what I could see from side to side and was stretching it. My head only pounded harder the more I tried to look. I struggled my way into the living room and collapsed onto the sofa. I buried my head in the cushions and then I... I think I passed out for a little time. I felt like I was in a fever dream. An endless walk through a shapeless mist of rolling black clouds. I was lost and I didn't know where I was. 
I realised I was lying down, rolling from side to side on the ground. And then this figure came out of the clouds. He was just there right in front of me, standing over me. He was a shadow. I could see no features, but he leant in close, as if to glare right at me. I woke suddenly in a terrible fright. I leant up gasping, thinking someone was there with me in the room. But there was no one. Turns out that I'd been out cold for over an hour. It had just felt like a few minutes. My vision was back, I could see clearly again. But my head still hurt very badly. I went to the kitchen to take some aspirin. That helped a little, but not a lot. I wondered whether I should call the doctor, but I didn't think they could really help. The sun had come back with a vengeance. That afternoon was swelteringly hot. I didn't dare go back outside, and not because I was afraid of those damn plants, but because the bright sunlight hurt my eyes. I'd have to look for my phone again later. I spent most of the rest of the day lying on the sofa, with the telly on quiet and a bag of frozen peas on my head. I felt like I'd gone on one hell of a bender. I was a little better as the day went on. I took some more pills, but they didn't help much either. By the evening I felt as if I'd lived three days in one. I was so tired. As the sun started to go down, I went back into the garden for my mobile. I found it not so far from those weeds. I drew it back towards me by stretching out my leg. I didn't want to go near the things for fear of another attack. I didn't know what on earth they were. All I knew was that I had to get rid of them. I stood staring at them. Was it just my imagination, or were all the flowers now facing towards me, the black and the little spot of red? They were like little devilish eyes staring at me. Tomorrow the plants would have to go. I didn't care if they were an amazing discovery, they were poisonous and I wasn't going to let them attack me again, or anyone else. My head started to ache under the slightest of strain, so I didn't upload the photos or contact Marcus that day. The screen just hurt too much to look at. I had a light sandwich for dinner, and then settled into bed quite early. It was still very hot, but I kept the window down, for fear of the pollen somehow drifting in. I just zonked out. I was so exhausted. I fell into a really deep sleep, even in the uncomfortable heat. I was just out like a light. But I didn't sleep for very long. I was woken by an almighty crash at about two in the morning. I sat bolt upright and suddenly heard sounds coming from downstairs. I thought I was being burgled, but someone had broken in. There was another crash from the kitchen. If someone was trying to rob me, they were making a damn racket about it. I wasn't sure what to do. My mobile was downstairs. I couldn't call the police. The house phone was down there too. Maybe I could just scare them off. I looked around for something to use as a weapon. There was still noise coming from the kitchen. Furniture being knocked about. They were wrecking the place. I had to think of something quick. What I ended up doing was 
taking the bar out of the wardrobe, the one that all the hangers sit on. Silly really, clothes went everywhere, but it was all I could think of. I had no idea where I'd left my damn phone, so I just had to try and scare them off. But as I descended the stairs, all I could hear were things being knocked around. It was as if they were emptying the cupboards. Why on earth would they be after the food? Plates were being smashed. Cutlery was hitting the floor. I stood in the corridor. I was frightened to go anywhere near him. So I just shouted, Oi! I know you're here! I've called the police! There was a frantic scurrying through the waste and carnage. I could hear things being kicked and pushed across the floor. And then this hand appeared in the kitchen doorway. There were no lights on. I couldn't see much. The hand felt along the doorframe, and then the body flung itself through. It flew across the hall like it had little or no control over itself, and smacked against the wall opposite. It was a naked man, heavy, tall, muscular, and caked from head to toe in mud. It smeared dirt across the wall as it staggered to its feet. It stood facing me, opened its mouth, and howled like a beast. It threw itself at me, clumsily charging down the corridor. I leapt up the stairs as it crashed violently into the front door, slipping on the muck on its own feet. I had escaped it, but as I dashed halfway up the stairs, I slipped and slid down towards the bottom. The mud man howled and snarled. I started back up the stairs. It grunted and gnashed its teeth, coming after me on all fours. It was faster than me. I reached the top step and attempted to leap into the bedroom, hoping to slam and barricade the door behind me. But it caught me. It caught me by the back of my heel and I fell. I felt it grab my legs. It had an iron grip. I could feel the dry mud rubbing against my pyjamas. I tried to pull my legs toward me and I rolled over on my back. I had dropped the rod from the wardrobe in fright. I had no way of defending myself. It crawled over me like a wolf, a savage animal, drooling at the mouth. I tried feebly to strike at it with my hands, but it pushed them too easily aside. It put its hands, fierce and hard, like a clamp around my neck. The grip was unbelievable. I felt the air spring from my mouth. It threw its head down towards mine, round, bald and horrifying and it roared in my face, warm drool falling all over me. I opened up my mouth and screamed. I threw myself up and woke up. It had been a dream. All a dream. I was drenched from head to toe in sweat. It was as if I'd wet the bed. I was shivering and so out of breath. I felt like I'd run a marathon. It might have been a dream, but I have never, ever been so terrified in my entire life. I felt my hands around my neck. The creature's grip had felt so real, so incredibly strong. The feeling lingered even though it had never existed. I had to go to the bathroom. I splashed cold water over my face and toweled the sweat off my whole body. I was still trembling when I went downstairs to check, just in case. 
that the mud-covered man had not in fact been there, and that the kitchen and hall were fine and intact, which they were. Still unsteady, I went back to my room. I've never really had nightmares, but that was the real thing. The most frightening thing I'd ever experienced. But it wasn't quite over. As I walked back into the bedroom, I saw something strange coming out from beneath the curtains. I thought that at first it might have been a crack in the wall, but when I got close I realised that it was a... it was a plant vine. And it was black. I threw open the curtains. The vines from the black weeds surrounded and spun around the bottom two panes of the window. They curled around each other in each frame as if fighting to push their way in. And they had. The weeds had forced up the window and crept inside. The small vine I saw dangling there was just the start. I threw the duvet off my bed. Vines had crept along the side of the bed and made it under the duvet and onto my mattress. Two thin sprouts even all the way under my pillow. You could see where my body had been. They had been rubbing up against my side. They had gathered together to make an outline of the left side of my body. A glass panel on the window cracked, making me jump. The vines were so determined to get in that their pressure was breaking the glass. I swept them off the bed and forced them back towards the window. Not knowing what to do, I went out to my garage and reached for the spare petrol tank out of the back of the car. I came into the garden with that, my new spade and my biggest shears. I poured petrol over the patch of the black weeds and with matches lit them alight. I then used the spade to sever the vines. I should have really done that first, for fear that they might carry the fire up the side of the house and into my bedroom. The vines had reached and stretched out across the lawn like a snaking tangle of wires and climbed directly towards my bedroom window. I struck and severed the vines and was able to move them across the grass with ease. They didn't have much grip there. But as the fire burned, I suddenly started to cough. There were fumes in the air, rancid, horrible fumes. I had to go back inside. Coughing, I closed the door and went back to my bedroom. I'd taken the shears with me, and there I went at the vines that had come in through the window, chopping frantically until I could get the window closed. I watched the fire from downstairs until it burned down. I was fortunate I did not set the whole garden on fire. Once the fire was over, I set about getting the rest of the weeds off the house. They had climbed so quickly up the wall that they had not gripped it too firmly and I was able to rip them off easily. There were no flowers, so no more horrible aroma. I gathered the whole lot up and threw them in the bin. I thought about setting it alight too, and sure if it could still grow and prosper even out of the soil. I actually got packing tape and sealed it up and around from top to bottom, and then I wheeled the bin into the garage and locked all the doors. Collapsed on the sofa after that. It was now almost light. I slept a fair few hours out of exhaustion. When I came to, I washed my face and went back outside to have a look at the garden. There was just soil now, nothing there. The black plants had burnt away. 
I checked the wheelie bin and saw the vines had indeed made an attempt to make an escape. One small little sapling had pushed up the end of the bin lid. I ripped it out and ground it into the concrete floor with my boot. Without light and food, the things would soon die. I was sure of it. Still in something of a state of shock, I made some breakfast. I was still trembling. Something had got into my house that night. I don't know what or how. But I had not been alone. Not completely alone. It was an hour or so later that I suddenly remembered Marcus and that he had taken a sample plant away with him. I tried his mobile but got no answer. I panicked and emailed him, left him a message on Facebook, but I heard nothing back. Then, the next morning, I got an email from his daughter to say that he was in hospital. He had had a respiratory failure. A massive asthma attack. I was horrified. I emailed them straight back but got no response. I heard nothing for days until I finally learned from a Facebook post that he died. Couldn't believe it. Asthma attacks happen. They happen all the time. But I couldn't help but wonder. I emailed the family to offer my condolences and I did ask about the plant in the most polite way possible. I had to know. If that thing was around, it could still be dangerous. I was worrying myself sick thinking about it. Staying awake at night. Giving myself migraines. I got an email back saying they knew nothing about the plant. This email was from one of the twins, who said they had found nothing of that sort in his house. I tried his university too. They knew nothing about the plant. He only taught there. He had no experiments or research. So what happened to that plant? I don't know. More than likely he threw it away or someone else did. The vines I threw in the bin eventually starved, withered and died. When I found out what had happened, I was so upset, so angry. I felt responsible if I hadn't have called him, asked him over. Don't know why, but I went to the shed and I got my shovel. I went out to the garden and started digging. I went straight to that patch where the black weeds had grown and I dug it up. I dug and I dug. I dug so far down that I caused my body to ache for days and days afterwards. I absolutely wrecked my back. The hole was almost ten feet deep and at least six feet across. What did I find? I found nothing. I think I expected to find bones or a body or chest. Some runes or something. I suppose I'd been watching too much television, but I thought that I might find something to explain why. But there was nothing, nothing there at all, no clues, no hints, no explanation whatsoever. I don't know what caused the weeds. I don't know what they were, or why they grew there, or what they did to me that night. It's as much of a mystery to me today as it was back then. Garden's in a real state now. Gardening has really lost its appeal. 
Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast and would like to support what I do, please consider leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. You can also become a patron and enjoy some bonus content by signing up at patreon.com slash newghoststories. This story features in the book 14 New Ghost Stories, which is available from Amazon, Apple Books, and other book retailers. This podcast is written, presented, and produced by David Paul Nixon. If you'd like to find out more about New Ghost Stories, visit my website, newghoststories.substack.com. And to get all the latest from me, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Mastodon, at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, if your home is haunted, when are you ever truly alone? <laughs>